Good morning. Glad to all have you here. Um, praise the Lord that you are well and your children are well this morning so you could be here. Let's turn our notebook over and begin as we do every week, bringing our attention to the disciplines. You know, we could, um, this time of the year, just start to zone out when we hear that, right? But I love how this purpose connects to the disciplines for us. So um, how this lesson, so we're, um, we just really want to be intent on listening. We'll talk about the disciplines as we read through our purpose. So the purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church. That's us. And if we could stop right there, we can just be humbled by God's grace. That he is a God who has been pleased to place us in a body of Christ with elders who want to equip and encourage us, right? God has placed it in the heart of our elders to equip and encourage us as women in the body of Christ. We are well cared for here. And hasn't it been so encouraging, as uh, Scott has been going through Acts 20, um, just to see how our elders have been chosen. They've been chosen by the Holy Spirit, how they've been called to guard themselves, and how they are so intent on shepherding us and caring for us and protecting one another. It's just been really encouraging to me. Um, And it's a cause to give thanks to God for his good gift to us. And, you know, we want to make it easy for them to do that job well. They have a lot to carry. Um, So we begin with discipline one. Um, So is that right? So, oh, yeah. So now what is it that um, they want us to be equipped and encouraged to do? To shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God, right? That's discipline one. The idea here is not to be consumed with our own heart off by ourselves, but to be diligent about bringing that heart to Jesus Christ, our Savior, through daily meeting with him in his word. That's the only safe place to examine our hearts, right? It's God's word. The only place where we'll be transformed to be more like Christ as we behold the greatness of who he is and what he has accomplished on the cross. That's why discipline one is worth fighting for. Persevere. Do not give up. To do everything we can to keep God's word in front of us throughout our day. Maybe even asking others to help us to learn how to manage our time so that discipline one has the highest priority in our day. And why do we shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word? It says so that we live gospel transformed lives. That's the result of spending time with Jesus in his word. The gospel transforms us and consequently transforms how we live how we think, how we speak, how we respond to one another, and how we serve. So that those in our home, there's that discipline one, um, that's discipline two, and then those at work, at school, wherever we go, can see and hear the impact the gospel has made. And the result of that is how our purpose concludes. Thus, strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And I find that to be really motivating, right? As long as I think how I shepherd my heart is just about me, or only as big as my little world and the places I go and the people I know, I can be content with a half-hearted pursuit of Christ. But when we remember that God has placed us in the body of Christ and that we're all members of it, and that God means for displaying the fullness of Christ for us by God's grace to build one another up in faith, then we realize how serious it is for us to be diligent with our walk with Christ. When we're careless with discipline one or two, it impacts our church. 
On your notebook, under the purpose, we see three Ds that tell us how to go about fulfilling the Wellspring purpose of our lives. We want to keep those in front of us, never forget them. We spent several months on the heart, and now we've moved into discipline to the home, and that's where we will continue with our lesson today on Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And by the time we're done today, I hope that we're convinced, if we're not already, that living out the gospel at our homes has to be built on shepherding our hearts with God's word in Discipline 1. So we're going to begin. I just want to encourage you, as I've needed to be encouraged this week, um, this is from Oswald Chambers this morning, actually, and I just thought, how apropos, because I think this is me a lot of times, and so I just wanted to share with you as we begin. Uh, He says, we may not consciously disobey God, we simply do not heed him, right? We may not consciously obey him, we simply do not heed him. God has given us his commands, there they are, but we do not pay attention to them, not because of willful disobedience, perhaps, but because we do not love and respect him enough. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We show how little we love God by preferring to listen to his servants only. We like to listen to personal testimonies, but we do not desire that God himself should speak to us. Why are we so terrified lest God speak to us? Because we know that if God does speak, either the thing must be done, or we must tell God that we will not obey him. If it is only the servant's voice we hear, we feel it not imperative. We can say, well, that's simply your own idea, though I don't deny it probably is God's truth. So just a challenge today as we hear, and we've heard these words before, but we really want to be um, not only hearers, but doers of the word. So let's pray. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law. And Lord, I do pray, as I so often do not heed, I hear, but I don't always heed. Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to take great delight in hearing what you have. Lord, these are not my words. These are your words, and Lord, we want to come under your word, and we want to be in submission to your word, and we want to be eager to do what you have asked us to do. So Lord, I pray that we would tremble at your word, that we would be quick to listen and quick to obey, Lord, that we might show our love for you. Thank you for the ladies that are here this morning. Thank you for your um, the gospel that tells us that though we were sinners, you have come to save us. You have saved us and redeemed us to belong to you for eternity. And Lord, you have left us here in a mixed condition to show forth your glory. So Lord, we look forward to all that you're going to do in us and through us this morning. Have your way with us, Lord. And I pray that um, this morning that you might speak, Lord, because our serv- your servants are listening to you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Proverbs 14, 1 that we're going to be looking at today. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with their own hands. This is a short verse, but it is packed full of truth and warnings. Home is the place where we first display all that the gospel has done in us because of Christ's work on the cross, right? We talked about that early in the year. So build in this verse, and you can turn to it if you want to. We're going to be in Proverbs a little bit throughout the morning, back and forth. Build, in this verse, may not refer to constructing a physical house, but caring for a household and causing it to flourish. Whereas a woman of wisdom builds up her household, a woman of folly lives in such a way that her household is neglected. A wise woman blesses those whom God has placed in her household, 
She will order her household with diligence, intentionally loving and doing good and not harm to those that live with her. She takes great pains to profit those in her home. Remember, our home is the place where we first display that gospel, right? I have seen so many of you and, and others in the church care for those around you, both in your home and the body. And I want to tell you just how very encouraging that is to me. That encourages me and spurs me on toward loving good deeds. It's great. It is a great blessing that the Lord has given us one another to encourage. Well, in contrast to the wise woman, the foolish woman tears her house down, even though she may do it inadvertently. She may be given to contentiousness, ungratefulness, bitterness, using her words as demolition tools and demolishing her home. The foolish woman will destroy those things and people most precious to her even. By God's grace, we are women because Christ has redeemed us. Placing our faith and trust in Jesus, we now are seen as wise women by God. I think we would all admit, though, there are times that we look more like a foolish woman because what is in our hearts at any given moment is what is going to come out. There's that residue of sin. And as you and I are diligent to renew our minds with Scripture, rather than listening to the familiar, loud voices of the world, by knowing God and his word and being a doer of his word, we can build up our home by his grace, with his help, rather than demonstrating foolishness and destroying our homes and those who live in it. He has died and he has risen from the dead to make us a reality for us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. This building up not only builds our homes, but look beside you. It builds up our dear sister's home sitting next to you this morning. It builds up our church body and the church body at large, and it builds up our country. You see, the way we live our lives, as it says in Titus, is to be a demonstration of the jewel of the gospel of truth. Titus 2.10 says that, um, so that in everything they may adorn the gospel of God our Savior. So we might envision the foolish woman in regards to a home of a large wrecking ball swung from a huge crane into a home or building that destroys the walls in an instant. Or perhaps, in contrast, like termites, destroying a home little by little, damaging the structure of the home before the damage is even visible. Left unchecked, those small bugs will destroy a whole home. Do you see that this happens? This can happen if we are not diligent to bring our hearts to God and to his word. You see, the more our eyes are turned to Christ, and the more diligently you and I pursue knowing him, the more we gaze upon his character, the less we desire to sin. We see his holiness. You see, if I look into the word and I see that God does not treat me as my sins deserve, as it says in Psalm 103.10, and being in his word, my sin is revealed there, and I learn that he is kind, he is full of love and of mercy. He's quick to forgive. That compels me to love him more and to pursue holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that for, God's, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. We belong to Christ. I don't think any woman really wants to tear down her home. 
But so many do, because the aim is not to glorify God, but self. We're driven more by personal desire and personal gain than God's glory when we tear down our homes. And we know this doesn't just happen, right? We just naturally uh, desire personal gain. God's glory, then, is a battle that we must fight for against this sin of selfishness or impatience so that when someone in our home does or says something contrary to my desire, my plan, we will respond in a way that brings God glory. We fight for that. We display his kindness when we respond in a loving manner when we've been wronged, or we display his patience when we are patient with another. So we must be preparing for, battling for, and aware of our own hearts so that what comes out of our mouths will be good that has been stored up in our hearts because we've purposed to know Christ and his character. I so need these words again and again. Through our attitudes and our words and our behavior, we have the power to bless, ladies, and we also hold the power to tear down and to destroy. So on your outline, we're going to first look at Proverbs 12, 18. So on, in my Bible, it's on the same page, but Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And Proverbs 18, 21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. I did change the um, placement of that just slightly on your outline, so it's right there. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. We want to be sure we understand what a proverb is, right? It's usually a short saying that gives insight on life and human behavior, but it cannot be interpreted as prophecy or a promise or absolute doctrine. So here's an example from Proverbs 16:7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. That's true, generally speaking. However, we know that Jesus' ways were always pleasing to the Lord, but his enemies were not at peace with him. doesn't mean that the proverb is wrong. It just means it's not a promise. It's a wise saying, and it examines, um, it's a general insight into life. So it examines all kinds of situations in life, proverbs, and then evaluates, is this wise or is this foolish? Well, we're going to learn this morning that Proverbs is very clear that a fool's only hope is for God, the all-wise one, to make one wise. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. And when God gives wisdom to a fool, that one is cured of his foolishness. His affections, desires, thinking, and living are transformed. The foolish one is given a new heart and a new identity. Only God can change the hearts of men. But what about the believer? Have you ever wondered, like I did for so many years, well, I think I'm a believer, but when I read verses like that in Proverbs, I'm looking more like a fool. Well, understanding now that mixed condition, understanding the heart has been changed by God, and our now mixed condition, we know it's describing a life characterized by foolishness, of one who has not been saved by God, instead of one who has been saved by God, but still is battling the sin of foolishness. And we find in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that although the message of the cross is foolishness to fools, to those who are perishing, it is the power of God for salvation to those who will believe. 
Christ has come become for the believer wisdom from God. Proverbs also goes on to tell us that we participate in pursuing, growing, and obtaining wisdom. So let's turn to Proverbs 2. It's back a few pages. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you will call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This chapter then goes on to tell us the value of wisdom. So we learn that wisdom comes from God. We are called wise because God has given us a new heart. But we remember that the power of sin has been broken and the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. But the presence of sin still remains. We have sin's residue on our hearts, right? Do you ever feel as though you're becoming more and more sinful as you grow closer to the Lord? Well, that's because we're being made more and more aware of that sin against a holy God. So as we learn more about him and grow in him, in reality, he's purifying us, and we praise him for that. So when we see fool in scripture, we ought to think two things. Is this one, one who has only hope is for God to give him a new heart, Or is this two, one who knows God, but who is acting foolishly at this moment, is flesh ruling? So as Tom reminded us in the lesson on Galatians 5, where we have listed the description of the one who is walking in the flesh versus the one who is walking by the Spirit, we are talking about one characterized by one or the other. One who is a fool will be characterized by the deeds of the flesh as an unbeliever. But as believers of Christ... We will display some of these deeds of the flesh, but not characterized by them. Our lives will be more descriptive of the fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs is not speaking to us as followers of Christ about our salvation status, right? We are no longer fools because he's adopted us as his children. But it helps us evaluate the residue of foolishness remaining in our hearts. So when we, you and I, see ourselves in Proverbs as we bring our hearts before his word, laid bare before him, and we see wisdom in our lives, We praise God for evidence of his grace. And when we see foolishness in our lives, we look to God for more grace in the gospel, for the power to turn from that foolishness and to walk in wisdom. So in both ways, our eyes are to be taken to the Lord. So Proverbs 14, 1, we all have a home, right? Some live with family and some with roommates. We've had three families in our body who have been home to three Papua New Guinea families for a season. Or maybe you have extended guests. Maybe you're a woman living alone right now. And you know, seasons change for all of us continually. But the wise woman, fully dependent on God and his word, build up, figuratively speaking, the prosperity of the household. We choose to be foolish women when we are trusting in our own understanding, being stubborn or obstinate. So on your outline, number one, wise women in Proverbs. So here are some descriptions of a wise woman. She's gracious, prudent, excellent. And you see the verses listed there. A gracious woman attains honor. A prudent wife is from the Lord. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. 
but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, what makes this woman excellent? It's her fear of the Lord, right? The wise is often seen in two important ways. So there's two characteristics of the wise. And the first blank on your outline, it's how we listen. The wise woman is teachable. There's an eagerness to receive instruction and learning, as well as alongside rebuke and discipline. So listen, does this describe us? A wise woman is in a full-on pursuit to grow in her understanding and to grow in her grasp of the gospel. This woman continues to saturate herself in gospel truths and realities and strives to know them more and more. She seeks to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A wise woman has nothing to dread because she's drawn upon the cross of Christ. This woman who trusts in Jesus no longer comes in her own righteousness, of which she had none. She now comes in his righteousness. The deeper our understanding of our sin and the holiness of God, the sweeter his mercy becomes on the cross. Said another way, the more bitter sin becomes, the sweeter love for Jesus becomes. You can follow along with me on your outline as I read from the book of Proverbs and the descriptions of a wise woman. Proverbs 8.33, a wise woman heeds instruction and does not neglect it. She loves the one who reproves her. We don't see our blind spots, do we? We need one another to help us to see those places where we are not being pleasing to the Lord. We're instruments in his hands. Going on, Proverbs 10.8 and Proverbs 15.31 both say a wise woman receives commands and she lives, listens to life-giving reproof, unlike the babbling fool that will be ruined. A wise woman listens to counsel and she accepts discipline. Proverbs 9.9, a wise woman, when she is taught, becomes wiser still. And Proverbs 8.34, a wise woman also listens to wisdom. So we see that a teachable spirit begins with humility that recognizes that we know so little of God's word and we apply even less of that what we do know. It's a spirit that recognizes that we have so much sin residue left in our hearts and we need help. A teachable heart is descriptive of a woman who knows she needs to change and grow and she is really eager to do that. It might be even inviting someone to speak into your life. What do you see in my life that you think I need attention to that maybe I'm not seeing? Could you help me? Well, the second blank on the outline is the wise woman speaks wisely. Proverbs 16:23 says, The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Jesus made the same point in Luke 6:45. The good man out of the good treasure in his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure, which brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And our wellspring verse here, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Challenges will come, right? You and I will sin, and we will be sinned against. Trials will come. Even prosperity can be a great test of what is in my heart. Whatever is in my heart is going to be revealed. We need to spend ourselves to be filled with the gospel of Christ so that what spills out is gospel realities and truths. 
and others are going to be drawn to him because of that. The prayer that Scott shared with us, a handout from the beginning of the year, has been helpful to pray and keep my heart engaged with the Lord. And one of the paragraphs reads, I desire my heart and my mind to be filled with you because of what your word reveals about you. I long for you to spill out into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in the word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. We are useful to the Lord as we submit ourselves to him through his word. Look at all that scripture says about our words. Starting in Proverbs 10:19 on your outline, a wise woman restrains her lips. A wise woman isn't rash, but rather her tongue brings healing. A wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. It turns aside the snares of death. A wise woman's lips protect. A wise woman makes knowledge acceptable, and her lips spread knowledge. Well, all of these verses show that to be wise, we must guard our hearts well, so that what comes forth from my mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, that it's winsome. We're all sinners living with sinners, right? The question is, then, how will I respond? Will I build up or tear down? Will I respond in light of the gospel? There are riches in our storehouse for this very moment, right? God has given us everything we need to respond rightly and to speak wisely and to be intentional. And we must do our part. So we can summarize one who is wise by how we listen and how we speak. So the platform has been set for our words, but Proverbs has many other ways that we can tear down our homes and more than we can even touch on today. But the next blank is for um, the example that Proverbs speaks severe warnings against the sexually immoral woman. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but you have references in your notebook for further study later. But we do need to understand what sexual immorality is, right? And that might seem like a funny question to ask, and yet in today's world, much of the world has seeped in. But biblically, God calls us to be pure, right? That means that we view others as brothers and sisters, seeking to speak to them and act toward them, to dress, and even in a way that does them good, that helps them see Christ in us and spurs them on toward love to God and to be pure. And the only relationship that that is to go beyond is that is if we are married, the relationship with that one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It's pure, and it's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually provocative or immodest in our dress, or, as Jesus said, even thinking sinfully or sexually about another person, is sexually immoral, immorality. But like any sin, sexual immorality is birth in our heart. Even if we think that we aren't behaving in a way that's sexually immorality, we might need to check our hearts, right? So here are some questions that we might ask. Where are my affections? Do I desire what I should not? Am I content with what God has given me or not given me? Am I conducting myself in a way that is loving in my dress, in my conduct, in my speech? Those kinds of questions can help us to identify if there are roots of sexual immorality in our hearts. And we must guard our hearts and minds by being very careful about what we watch and what we read. There's a lot of worldly views that have penetrated the TV screens, 
movie theaters, and New York bestseller lists. It's nothing less than sexual immorality, even though they may add some beautiful music and beautiful actors and actresses to make it look less vile. In guarding our hearts, it's about what we allow in and it's what we, allow, what we keep out. Ladies, we cannot let this kind of entertainment entertain us. Do not be entertained by what Christ has died for. Don't be entertained by what Christ has died for. It's vile and it's sexual immorality. Next on your outline, Proverb warns against idleness. All throughout Proverbs. Idleness tears down our homes. Here are again some questions for a check. Thinking about idleness, whom do I serve? Am I a hectic sluggard? Busy, 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 but never accomplishing the important? Do I neglect priorities that God has given me? Do I do what I want to do, regardless of what is at hand? Laziness or idleness also tears down. It's characteristic of a foolish woman, and it's rooted in self-love. It's the ability to take myself off the hook. It's a willingness to permit ourselves not to do things we should do. It's believing that good things should come to me without my having to invest in them. It's opting for what is comfortable for myself rather than what's best for others. Maybe that can be seen in the discipline of our children. Raising children is really hard work. It's not for the weary. And my eye must be on what is best for my child and not my own pleasure or my own comfort. Laziness is always self-focused and self-excusing. It is undisciplined and unmotivated. Laziness demands good things without a willingness to invest. All of these warnings are very serious and the references are there for you for later. We're gonna focus on contentiousness this today to be ready to use our words to build up rather than to tear down. So the next blank is a contentious woman. The definition of contentious is to be given to angry debate, to be quarrelsome, strife and discord. So let's look at the foolish woman Proverbs, Proverbs 19.13 on your outline. The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Proverbs 21.9 and 19, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. And a vexing here means to provoke or to stir up, debate in anger. It might look like one who has to have the last word. Proverbs 27, 15 and 16, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and contentious women are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. And we're going to look in Exodus. If you'll turn back to Exodus, one of the most sobering examples of contention in the word is seen in the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. See if you can identify yourself here. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was not water for the people to drink. So we see they have a real need. They need water, right? But the problem is in their response to this need. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Well, do you ever find yourself 
responding like that, grumbling or complaining. Grumbling and complaining are signs of contention and we tear down our homes and relationships when our heart is filled with discontent. Thankfulness, though, cultivated in our hearts kills contention. Thankfulness cultivated in our hearts kills contentiousness. Thinking on all that God has done for us as believers, what we truly deserve and what he has given to us, and the price that he paid, and all that he even gives us now to enjoy in the way of earthly blessings is a sure way to battle that sin. There is always something to be thankful for when you know the Lord, right? He is at work. He's going to use this circumstance for my good and for his glory. He is good, and he's always good. We can trust our God. God was gracious to his people, though. In spite of their sinful responses, he provided for their need. He provided water. But the passage goes on for the lesson that God has, and we're going to jump down now to verse 7. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, what can we learn from that? That genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. A genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Contentiousness breeds more sin. Grumbling, fear, and accusations, one sin leads to another. Right earlier in the year, we learned that sin travels with companions. And three, complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. Ouch. Here is an example of one who has fallen short of his understanding of God in this passage, or one who is short-sighted. We preach to ourselves verses that speak to God's faithfulness, and we're not going to complain. Again, we want to remind one another of those as well, right? When we're in a difficult situation, we want to come alongside our sister and remind her of God's faithfulness or whatever it is at hand. But complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and about his faithfulness. God's view of contentiousness is that we are actually testing him. We are not believing that he is actually among us or that he cares for us or that he is at work for our good. We're not trusting God's goodness to us when we complain that what we have at this moment is his best for us. Blessings and difficulties both. I hear myself, I hear myself saying those words and reminding my own heart how quick I am to grumble and complain. It will do us good again and again to look toward the cross. God provided for our greatest need in salvation. And you know what? He's going to provide for us in every other way. He has promised that no matter what, no exceptions ever. Life is hard. Circumstances can be difficult. No matter what you and I face today or in the future, we can be confident that they have passed through our loving Father's hands. He loves us, and he's working for our good. El Roy is the name of God, and it says that he knows and he sees. Well, this same pattern shows up throughout Israel's 40 years of wandering to the near end. They've had 40 years of God's faithfulness to them, and yet they continue to be contentious. So back to Proverbs 29:22, he reveals that contention is stirred up by anger. Proverbs 
says a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Contention is stirred up by arrogance. Proverbs 28.25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. These are promises from the Lord. By gossip, 26.20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Contention also creates defensiveness. Contentions are like the bars of a citadel, says in Proverbs 18.19. When a city was under attack, the city would bar themselves in for protection. And this type of defensive action in our home, though, brings division, Right? There's contention and one party hides away or, or withdraws. You won't get to me. I'm safe here. And there's withdrawal from one another. There's that barring. So the next time that you encounter control or anger or withdrawal in a relationship, look behind to discern what the real issue is. It could be that there's some hidden concern and anxiety or other form of fear. Instead of defending yourself, try something like this. I've just realized how concerned you must be about whatever it is at hand. Please help me understand more clearly how you're going, how you're feeling so that we can work on this. And again, reminding one another of truth. The more quickly you address each other in this gentleness and kindness and love of Christ, the more often we're going to see positive results in our relationships. Who among us has not hurt by another's words or that we have hurt someone with our words? and have regretted that. Who among us can say my words are always appropriate to the situation and they are always kindly spoken? No one, right? Well, John 1, 1, we have hope. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We learn here that Jesus is the Word. He is the only hope for our words. Apart from him, we can do no good thing. Paul Tripp writes that speaking redemptively is all about choosing our words carefully. It's not just about the words we say, but also about the words we choose not to say. We refuse to let our talk be driven by passion and personal desire, but communicating instead with God's purposes in view. And then, are we prepared for that um, kind of sanct- for that sanctification? For what sanctification will cost? Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ. It will cost an intense narrowing of my own interests and an immense broadening of all interests in God. Sanctification means intense concentration on God's point of view. It means every power of body, soul, and spirit chained and kept for God's purpose only. Are we prepared for God to do in us all that he has separated us to do? God's wise, redemptive purpose is to use our relationships as a workroom for his ongoing work of sanctification. In all relationships, hearts will be exposed and changed as we come under him in submission to his words. We can trust him. He has promised to finish the work that he has begun in us. Instead of demanding change in another, we want to learn what it means to speak redemptively in the face of disappointment or hurt or failure and sin, all common experiences in a fallen world. 
But what does it mean for us to choose our words, to speak redemptively, to forsake contention? Let's look at a couple of passages that point to us the way of change. Both of these passages, I'm going to turn to Galatians 5, define what it means to choose our words so that we may be part of what the Redeemer is doing in our lives and in those around us. Well, um, Galatians 5, 13 through 15 tells us where we have gone wrong. Galatians 5. Verses 13 and 15. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Are our relationships shaped by the rule of love? Are they showing forth the servant posture we are called to here? We seek God to reveal how we could be used to encourage one another and support what God's doing in the life of another. We want to obey the Lord when he says, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We make it our aim to look for ways to comfort and encourage, to warn or to train or to teach It's important to view the difficulty before us as an opportunity to minister God's grace. We have a choice to make in the moment of the battle of disagreement or fear or whatever it is that um, is between us. We look to serve but not to be served. And this builds up our home and this builds up our body. It's here that this passage is helpful because it tells us that the opposite of serving in love is not a lack of love, and a lack of service, but an active indulging of the sinful nature. Either I'm living as a servant of the Lord and accepting his call to, those, to serve those around me, or I'm living to gratify the cravings of the sinful nature and expecting others to satisfy those cravings as well. Well, James 4 um, explains our desires, how they affect the dynamics of our relationships, right? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So back to Galatians verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This also offers a significant insight. The problems in relationship are not fundamentally horizontal, person to person, but fundamentally vertical, person to God. If I'm living for God's glory, if I hold this as a more personal gain than my own happiness, if my love for him stands above my love for anyone or anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything I do and say wherever he put me. One sure fruit of such a heart commitment to God is that I will be, that I will love my neighbor as myself. So far to go, I have so far to go. When a desire for a certain thing replaces love for God as the controlling force in my heart, the result will be conflict in my relationships. Conflict has vertical roots that produce horizontal fruit of fighting and quarreling. Love for God that makes me want to keep his law is always the result in practical love toward my husband, my child, my roommate, my parents. 
And verse 15 says, If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by one another. Communication is designed to build up. Jesus is the word. God is the word. Rather than being skilled in taking chunks out of one another, right? Communication is um, words that can be critical or condemning, judgmental, manipulative, threatening, selfish, malicious, demanding, ruthless, vengeful. And if that describes our words, we need more than a radical change in our vocabulary. We need a radical change of the heart. This heart change fundamentally alters the way that we speak to one another. The problem isn't that we have problems, right? The core issue is the way the desires of our heart dictates our response to each other in the midst of those problems. When we live for ourselves and not for God, we bite and devour. When our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but by the desires of the sinful nature, and when we look to have our own dreams and desires and little kingdom fulfilled, we'll become angry and disrespectful and disappointed with one another and will beat each other with words. Galatians 5 continues, though, to provide helpful answers. And I'm going to go back over just a little bit of what Tom said. Um, in verse 16, um, I say that live by the Spirit and I will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that what you do not do, what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And verse 22 is the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Verse 24 through 26, those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual we should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. So this gives us a step-by-step guide for what it means to speak, to build up, and not tear down. We cannot ignore the practical concerns, because we will encounter them every day, right? Rather, we speak to these concerns in a way that promotes the interests of the king. We speak well by recognizing the war that's going on in verses 16 and 17. As long as intwelling sin remains, there'll be a war in our hearts. We must always live aware of this conflict because to forget the presence and power of indwelling sin will immediately lead to problems in our conversations. Never giving in to the desires of the sinful nature as we talk. All of us wrestle with conflicting desires. When something has gone wrong, We may desire that an appropriate, godly response be found, but others are there right as well, right? We may desire to shift blame or not take responsibility. We may desire to rehearse over and over and over again how this person has hurt us over and over and over again. Or we might want to talk about this with someone else. We might want to gossip. We may be jealous that somebody is giving attention that we think we deserve. Or we'll be filled with rage. We build up our relationships and our homes by saying no to any communication that would not flow from these desires. We do not first speak looking at the situation. We begin by looking at our own hearts, self-examination. Building up our home means refusing to speak in any way that is contrary to the spirit. 
As a Christian, the most important thing in my life is the completions of God's work in me and in others. We never want to obstruct what he's doing right in the little moments of life. We want to recognize that ultimately those little moments don't belong to me, but they belong to him. They are the workroom in which he does his work of sanctification. My job then is to be a usable instrument in his redeeming hands. Anytime that I speak out of sinful desires, I'm communicating in a way that is contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce in me and in another at that moment. If I'm seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me and not give room for the enemy, I must be willing to examine my talk with the mirror of the Word of God. I want the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to Him, right, at all times. And I know you do as well. So we daily bring our... um, ourselves before his word. And we can do that anytime throughout the day, all throughout the day, right? This discipline of shepherding my heart is done not just in the morning, in my quiet time, or not just at lunch when, after the kids go to bed, but shepherding my heart is all throughout the day. So we want to pay attention to our hearts. How do I respond and why? What's going on in my heart And we look at our heart, digging deeper to see the roots of my words. And then we have to talk about the cold shoulder or the not speaking, yet thinking wrong thoughts is just as damaging because all of that is rooted in the heart and rooted in self-love. I do not examine myself with the morbid, discouraged attitude of self-criticism. Don't do it. I do it with joy, realizing that because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, I do not have to live under the control of the sinful nature. Praise God. With joy, I seek him. I seek to please him in every way, in every situation. I want to speak in a way that is worthy of the calling that I have received. We are a work in progress, are we not? I must say no to any rationalization or blame-shifting or self-serving arguments that would excuse talk that is contrary to the work of the Spirit. Speaking redemptively means speaking in step with Him. Speaking in step with the Spirit means a commitment to speak in a way that's consistent with Him. And I look at the difficult situations of life as sovereignly given opportunities to see this fruit mature in me by His grace. Difficulties are not obstacles to the development of this fruit, but opportunities to see it grow. Isn't that encouraging? I seek to give no place to the passions and desires of the sinful nature. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. It says that when we come to Christ, we crucify. That is not a passive action. The passions and desires of the sinful nature. This passage directs us to consider an aspect of the gospel that we often overlook. The gospel is a glorious message of comfort, of sins forgiven, condemnation lifted, relationship with God reconciled, spirit given, and an eternity guaranteed. But the gospel is also a call to forsake living according to the cravings of the sinful nature so that we might live for Christ. True salvation is not only about receiving comfort, it's about answering the call. This once-for-all commitment to godly living, crucifying the passions and desires of the sinful nature, 
must be lived out by the indwelling power of Christ in all of our relationships. To speak words that are shaped by the emotions and desires of the sinful nature is to deny both Christ's power of freedom from sin and our commitment to live as those who belong to him. Gentleness should be our natural response when we see a brother ensnared and goes on in Galatians to give us that, give us that teaching Gentleness flows from knowing where our power lies. God is, can use whispered words to produce thunderous convictions in a heart, right? Yes, we want to think and speak well, but only because we want to be helpful to the one who does bring change. Not because we're um, skilled, right, in our words. It doesn't come, gentleness doesn't come from a person who is angry and looking to settle the score. It comes from the person who is speaking not because of what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. And I build up my home when I want what's best for others, the good I want for someone. I'm able to speak gently only when I'm not speaking out of personal hurt or anger or bitterness, but out of redeeming love. I speak to you not because your sin has affected me, but because it has ensnared you. I long to see you freed of its snares. I'm not on a mission of selfish confrontation, but loving rescue. And I know that we all need that kind of rescue every day. This just shows how desperately we need God in his word, continually. We must make this heart ready to respond this way, to be pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't just happen. We have to be intentional. Contentiousness, then, is a repeated warning in the home, as we have seen. But we also must remember our hope. On the outline, gospel hope for contentious women. So we are going to turn to 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It says, and he himself bore our sins in the body on the cross, so that we might die to what? To immorality, to idleness, to contentiousness, to harsh speaking, and live to righteousness, thankfulness, contentedness, peaceably, for by his wounds we have been healed. We've been forgiven. We've been made new. We are new creatures in Christ. Thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel is another part of shepherding my heart throughout the day. The gospel helps me move from a performance relationship with God to one who is based on the sinless life of Christ and his sin-bearing death on the cross. It reminds me that from God's view, my relationship isn't based on how good or bad I do today in my conversations, how wise or how foolish I have been, but upon the perfect goodness and death of Christ and the resurrected Savior. The gospel freely, I'm sorry, the gospel frees me to honestly face and acknowledge my sin. And ladies, if I don't see and acknowledge my sin, I will not see my need for him, and I will continue on to trust in my own self-righteousness. 
the good news reminds me that God no longer counts that sin against me. Praise be to God. Ladies, tearing down a home takes time, little by little, a little here, little there, like the termites. Or there are times that great ruin happens quickly, like a wrecking ball, great damage that takes much to rebuild. Maybe unnoticed for a time, words said or not said or swept under the rug. Romans 12, 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you and I are thinking thoughts consistent to the world's ways, like being annoyed or disappointed or prideful, we must renew our minds to think like Christ. This is what shepherding our hearts throughout the day looks like in part. Sin left unchecked and swept under a rug or hidden in a closet all looks okay, but like a fire smoldering, it will soon erupt into a huge fire and the house is destroyed in an instant. Oh, for greater grace from God to be builders of our home and not demolition experts. There are a few contrasts to help evaluate, I think, on your outline. Do my words build up or tear down? Just again, another questions and um, things to check. I frequently express gratitude for the benefit that I've received from God and from others. Or do I frequently grumble about having what I don't want or wanting what I don't have? Do I build others up with words of praise, appreciation, and admiration? Or do I often hurt others with critical belittling words. I'm quick to point out the failures of others, and I think sarcasm might fit here. Words build up and words can destroy. What you think is funny may not be very funny to somebody else. Am I quick to humble myself and seek forgiveness when I've wronged someone, or do I tend to defend and justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong? I'm faithful in praying for God to work in others' lives, like my husband or my children, co-workers. Have you prayed about this as much as you have grumbled about it? Or do I spend more time talking to friends or counselors about the needs of lives and the others more than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf? Well, the tongue is a little member, James says, of the body, but it is one member that must be yielded to God as a tool of righteousness. It is a powerful tool. When we are wise with our words, we are placing our trust in God, confident of his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. In 1 Peter 2.23, right above that, it says, When we, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. Don't you love this? And trusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ submitted to the Father. How much more? What an example he is to us. Well, on the outline, fight the sin of contention by remembering God's character. He can only ever be kind and good. Always think the best of another. Love hopes all things, right? Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's an attitude we must have in your time with the Lord, because it's true. In your time with the Lord, ask him to show you what pleases him in your speech and what does not. 
we can then align our hearts with his and seek him for his grace and renew our minds with his truth. Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Look around you and give thanks in all things, you know, because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And there is much to be thankful for. Continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. Well, there are many other ways in scripture that we can build up our homes. But today we focus on our tongues and how they reveal what is in our hearts. My hope is that you have been encouraged by God's grace to you through this lesson and that by the Holy Spirit, maybe there have been places that you've been convicted of places you need to change, that you need to seek God's grace in. Martin Luther at the end says to encourage us as we go from here today, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me of telling me how great my sins are. On the contrary, when you say I'm a sinner, you give me armor and a weapon against yourself. For Christ died for sinners. You do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. We can be women who speak redemptively. Christ has equipped us to speak to build up. The gospel is a call for us to forsake living according to the cravings of the sinful nature so that we might live for Christ. Let us pursue him diligently, that we might be wise women building up our homes, our church, the church at large, building up our world. Let's pray. You are the word. You are our only hope for our word. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have given your blood to purchase us, to belong to you. And Lord, now we no longer live for ourselves, but we live to you for your glory. And we want to do that well. We want to exemplify you. Lord, thank you for giving us great examples in your word. Thank you that um, you have died, that we might be set free. Lord, um, you were despised and rejected and God the Father separated from him, Lord, that we would never, ever be separated from you. What an amazing thought and an amazing truth. I do pray this morning, Lord, that we would not just hear these words and put them aside, but God, that we would hear these words as your words continue to work in my heart on the truths and realities that I've learned as I've saturated myself in this lesson this week. Lord, would you do in us what you desire to do Lord, let us heed your instruction. Lord, may we tremble at your word. Thank you for giving us this great love letter that shows us who you are. The great, majestic, mighty, holy, redeeming, kind, loving, quick to forgive, patient Father. We love you, Lord. May our lives look more and more like you every day. By your grace, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.